Hello, and welcome to the Voices of Rathdown podcast. This podcast has been set up to give politicians, organizations, and humans in the Rathdown area a platform. This is to engage and empower people in their local community. I'm your host, Caitlin Grant, and I believe in the importance of getting involved in your area. Today, we are joined by Paul Gordon who's the Stilorgan area representative. And today we're going to get to know Paul a bit more and hopefully he'll let us know what we can do in the area of Rathdown to get more involved. So, hi Paul, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hey Caitlin, thanks very much for having me. My, I'm Paul Gordon, as you said. I'm the Labour Party local area representative for the Stilorgan local area, a local electoral area. Um, and that takes in, it's kind of a long, narrow strip of the... That, that straddles the Dublin Rathdown and the Dunleary Dáil constituency. So it kind of starts up in Milltown, just near the, the just near the bridge, and goes as far down as Cabin Teeley Park. So it stops just before Cabin Teeley. So it's a, a wonderful, beautiful um, strip of South Dublin. Takes in a few really vibrant communities, some wonderful community groups, and some lovely amenities like Cabin Teeley Park, for example, Clonmore Park and Salorgan and many 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 more that I'm, I'm sure will come to mind later i suppose what i do um i i ran in the the local elections in 2019 around february 2019 uh, and ran until may and um, so that was my kind of first go at uh, at running an election and that was uh it was an interesting time it's kind of getting to know a whole area with about thirty thousand houses in it in uh, a very short space of time and um, but it was hugely rewarding and I, I suppose like what really what really hit me and what, what impacted me was was getting to hear people's stories like you, I've worked on campaigns and things before but not for myself and you kind of go knocking on doors with a bit of trepidation to start and you know you hear stories of people getting a bit of stick but the response and the feedback I got was, was really positive and you just be amazed by the amount of things people kind of tell you if you knock on the door and suffer a chat not everybody wants to, but you do, you, you learn more about people, how they work and what really matters to them. And I think that's that's hugely important in, in politics and particularly in local communities, getting to understand what really drives people and what, what could make their lives better in a local area and you know can be things as simple as as a new bench in your in your local green or or as complex as a new as new transport or, or active travel infrastructure so that that was kind of my my path to being the local area representative so after the election in 2019 the Labour Party would have asked me to, to stay as a local area rep and I was delighted to do so because I really enjoyed the area and want to represent people there so that's, that's why I've, I've kind of continued in it and it's a little bit hard to engage with people during a pandemic and um, so that's something that I do I do kind of miss getting out and meeting people but you know there's still contact through social media and email but it's not the same so I do hope I can get out and meet people in in a socially distant and respectful way in the future. From what you've said anyway that you've a huge passion for the entire area around you even like the parks and stuff like that you know as you say it's only small things like adding benches walking past you know some flowers and things like that that make a huge difference and it sounds like your your passion is really brought out to the people and your love for getting to know people and their stories i'm just wondering you say you ran in the local elections in 2019 but would you mind going in more in maybe the lead up to this have you always had an interest in politics when i was in school i was really interested in history but i was never had an interest in 
in kind of military history. I had friends who loved like other war stuff. Uh, and I found that kind of tedious, but what was really interesting to me was kind of the lead up to how that happened and like how relationships break down between nations or between rival groups that make people go to war. And I always found that that really, that really interesting. That was the element of history that I liked. So I always had really interest in history and international relations. And that's what I studied in college. And I probably didn't really develop a huge interest in Irish politics until a little bit later because I kind of thought, oh, this, you know, like international relations, foreign diplomacy was you know really interesting and and who'd kind of be bothered with Irish politics but the more you look around your your local community and the more you realize the impact the impact that the decisions you take locally can have an impact on the world around you and your local community I guess I I kind of rethought that and the more I looked into it it was, I guess, something that I became a lot more interested in. I mean, I left college in, in 2010, so it was in the teeth of the recession. Uh, and I think people were, were probably pretty politicised then, and, and that may have informed it a bit. Like, I I think I, I always voted for the Labour Party, but I, I probably was a was a hurler in the ditch. I didn't get involved in student politics. And it's probably something that I, that I regret now that I didn't get involved in politics sooner because you meet so many interesting and... You meet a lot of like-minded people, but like it's, I always enjoy meeting people from other parties as well because I don't think you really learn a lot about the world if you're only talking to people who who largely agree with you all the time. So yeah, that's that's kind of where I I first got into politics. I I always voted Labour. I didn't come from a political family, but I guess I had a set of values that I think were probably instilled from a young age, just about. You know, like the kind of basic values of equality, community, decency, treating others with respect. And that probably informs how I think now. Uh, uh, and like, I again, like it wasn't, I wasn't in any way a political family, but I was always kind of aligned with those values of the Labour Party around social justice, economic justice as well. Uh, and that, that kind of led, that kind of led me to it. So I would have joined the party probably around 2013. I, I ended up working for Alex White, who was, he was a TD and a minister at the time. And and I would have looked after his his constituency office. So that's where I kind of got my first taste of meeting people in that political setting. I don't think I've really been involved in, in any big campaigns before. Uh, and that's kind of, I, suppose, like, I think that that was really like a formative experience for me because I got to meet people day in, day out and talk to people who were impacted by, by issues locally uh, and, and also things that were national issues. And that really kind of inspired my passion to help people locally and to do more in politics. You know, you have people who have really, really difficult situations that come to you looking for a big solution. You can't always offer it, but I, I think you can. I think you can offer them basic decency and respect and listen to their their issues and I think what's fundamental to politics is people and I, I think through that job while I always had a certain set of values that all certainly kind of concentrated them for me like the values of public service you know working with local schools and hearing from teachers the challenges that they face you know people who they their their passion wasn't necessarily from getting the best out of the brightest kids but off or the brightest kids but you know the kids who might have challenging home lives kids who have really disruptive home lives and school is is the only structure for them and talking to them they like they got their the most satisfaction out of helping 
those people who were really in quite challenging situations. And I suppose that that kind of informs my politics. You know, you hear, but on, on the positive, like we, we had many people that would come through the office uh, and it was just, if you could make a small difference for them through advocacy within various systems, be it through the health system, social protection, like that, that was making a difference. And I think that is like central to community. We had one guy who was, who came into us um, initially because he, he couldn't really look after his wife any, anymore and he was looking for help. And we were able to, to, we were able to help him out and put him on the right track. He ended up coming in every Friday for a chat with me and he was really interested in, in, in social issues and like he, we struck up a bit of a friendship and he, it was around the time of the marriage equality referendum in, in 2015. Like he was so passionate. He was such a good campaigner. He was out every other night. He'd come to every public meeting and just to see someone like that who was so passionate about the issue and was willing to give so much of their time you know that that kind of thing is quite inspiring um so so like it's people like that who really i suppose made me consider more getting in, get getting into politics i went to work for the irish cancer society after that and i suppose my day job i advocate a lot on, on behalf of patients who are going through um, a pretty tough time in their lives and ensuring that politicians in Leinster House are, are aware of those challenges and, and giving patients a voice at at that kind of policy level. And I, I've worked, I'm still I'm still working there for the past six years or so. So when it came to the elections in, in 2019, Alex was actually councillor for Slorgan and he kind of just said like, would you be would you be interested in this? One or two other people in the constituent mentioned it to me and it was always in the back of my mind, but I, I just, uh, it was one of those things where if someone encourages you, you don't really have to think about it you'd love to do it but I probably just needed that push and uh, that's that's how it started I, I really enjoyed it but I suppose again like I said the, the thing you miss most and I think if you talk to, to anyone about politics the thing you miss most in the moment is, is, is getting out and meeting people because you just you can't do it in the same way and like just going to community cleanups helping out with community gardens meeting up with local advocacy groups be it cycling or you know river cleanups that kind of thing you kind of see community at its best and uh, people people come together to, to improve the local around them and I think that's kind of that's really what local politics is all about and that's how so many people get involved you know you don't sometimes you don't consider like the communities that that you are involved in it's just it's just kind of natural like I've been involved in soccer for years and if you ask me if I was when I was younger whether I thought that was a community I probably would have said no but it, it absolutely is like this and there's real societal value things like that that bring so that's kind of probably informs my politics and how I got to be a local area rep. It's amazing to have the opportunity now to talk to you and get to know you a bit more because I feel like I didn't know any of those things like that you worked for the Irish Cancer Society or that you were in the the office with Alex White so that's really good for me to know anyway it just goes to show you like when you have so much passion for the area around you and the people in it that you can bring even more to that get to know people and them getting to know you as you've described in the stories it's interesting that you studied in international relations and then decided to bring those kind of skills and talents back to your local area and i was just wondering what kind of brought you to that idea when you started working in the constituency office obviously you have a background in in politics now would you want to run for an international election or get involved in european politics or anything like that Good question I had never thought about. Um, I, I really, um, I suppose I'm interested in like how, I know it can be a bit boring, but I, I'm kind of interested in how institutions work and how they can influence them more than anything. So like my day job, like I do a lot of work with Eurocdus um, and sometimes with the European Parliament. Uh, and I suppose like it's kind of a, 
So I think there's a disconnect between people in Ireland and many other European member states with with European institutions, uh, and I, there, it's 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 almost an out of sight, out of mind thing. And I think we're so closely aligned to other EU member states. Look, we're an island on on the west of Europe, so we don't have that the physical and geographical connection that maybe some of those states right in the heart of Europe do. But like I think I think our country does have strong European values. I think we have strong. There's a strong social democratic history in Ireland. Look, traditionally it's been it's been pretty small. Currently it's pretty small, but we've we've always looked outward to influences from other. And I'm talking about the Labour Party now, but but looking outward to other influences in Europe and applying those values here and what works. And I don't think we can really learn within a vacuum. And, and you know, I, I certainly think there are things that can be changed by European institutions. I think people do feel a disconnect to it. And I think sometimes that is in part that our, our reps generally tend to base themselves in Brussels most of the time. You know, thinking from an Irish context, we'd be happy we are very close to their constituencies. All TDs dedicate a huge amount of time to constituency work and not just parliamentary affairs. And that probably doesn't happen so much for European representatives. And that's the kind of thing that I think I think European representatives and candidates really need to, to consider and think about. Like I think there's always like for MEPs in Dublin, it should be putting it should be about putting Dub- Dublin at the heart of Europe and not getting tied up necessarily in the in the bureaucracy you see in, in European institutions. So to answer your question, no, I'm really um, very interested in in what's happening locally and working for local communities. I think there are probably people out there who could do a really good job of actually reforming the role of MEPs without actually reforming European Parliament and ensuring that Dublin and other Irish constituencies do actually have a voice in Europe and it can kind of get lost in a very large parliament. But I think we could we could probably do with stronger representation in Ireland from Irish MEPs, if that if that makes sense. Yeah, 100%. It is interesting what you've said. Being a representative for a constituency, you have to understand issues not only in your constituency, but in the rest of Ireland and maybe different parts of Europe to make sure that you can compare different kind of areas, situations and solutions. If we get stuck in our own bubble and we're only thinking of our issues and and what we've tried before, we're never going to get to try things that other people have done in different countries or constituencies and really had a go at seeing a positive impact. I do like our ref- well, some of them. <laughs> I, I think there should be more of a link, especially since they are based usually in Brussels. I've met I've met most of them from just going to hustings and just random, you know, energy summits and things like that. It, it is great for, for someone uh, at my young age to be able to engage with those politicians and because someone is going to have to eventually take over and, and we should get the chance to learn from their experiences and what what we should be doing at the moment in Ireland. So it would be great for, for them to have a voice there, but also for us to find more out. It should be accessible for us to know what they're doing and how we can get more involved and make sure our voices are heard. Yeah, well, I mean, I think like one of the challenges at European level, and I realise we're maybe talking about local local issues, is that when we've talked about ever closer union in Europe, it's it's often been on economic issues. It's often been on free trade. I suppose working in the health sector, it's, it's challenging because there are, there are different, obviously, member state competencies. I think there are opportunities there for us to create a, a more social Europe, you know, like Labour representatives will talk about this for, for eons. And it, it, there, there are various pillars within the European Union structure that we look at Europe as 
this in some ways we have a very positive view of europe i think everybody welcomes freedom of movement free trade has been hugely beneficial for for the bloc particularly for uh, for smaller countries and definitely been beneficial to um partners in eastern europe as well but what's often neglected is 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 social issues there's i guess the competencies rest with member states but i think we need voices in europe that that really talk about economic equality rather than just a blind focus on 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 the free market have you listened to the blind boy podcast before i've listened to it once so, so I I um I, I've listened to one to one episode and I can't even remember what it was. Yeah, so. he, he has a lot of different kind of he topics and issues and rants. Yeah. And stuff, but I've started listening to them recently just because I, I I think people talk about him. But there was one of the podcasts and it was talking about how Ireland isn't very connected to the EU and like Europe because it's like we're on our little island and then Europe's over there and Europe's you know it's too good for us it has its fancy bread and it you know (laughs) and it's fancy meats and stuff and we're here in Ireland and I feel like a lot of people don't feel like they have the right to own European issues and that maybe that is creating a divide between us and European issues because maybe we feel some of the time subconsciously that we don't really deserve to have our issues heard we could because we can't relate to what's going on there and this barrier needs to change because we do have a lot of issues here in Ireland economically you know homelessness direct provision and then this climate crisis is going to create a lot of injustices we do need to make sure that this barrier can be can be kind of broken down and so we can get our voices heard there a lot more yeah no, you make a good point like I think there I think maybe sometimes we I'm not sure how like we're influenced in our thinking we don't necessarily always we don't always necessarily turn to, to Europe for comparison. We look we look for like Anglo-Saxon neighbours on either side of the pond as reference points. And if we're making comparisons with other European countries, be it in the quality of our, our healthcare, be it in the quality of our social safety nets, they're probably not brilliant comparisons. We're, we need to kind of look at similar sized countries and well, I mean, sometimes it's, it's, it's a cultural thing. We need to look at similar sized countries who have actually made a success of implementing social democratic values. Norway has a similar population to ours. And it's not just in terms of, it's not just in terms of social de- democratic values, but it's in things like regional development that we have a very hodgepodge system in Ireland where Dublin is the capital and it has 1.5 million people. And then the next biggest city is Cork, and it's nowhere near half the population. Whereas in in better developed countries regionally and economically, there is a better spread of population around the country. Yeah, I, I think some. I think sometimes we don't we don't necessarily think in a European mindset like we're members of the of the European Economic Community in the EU for since the early seventies and. We're still in a, in a very, yes, but maybe not. Maybe it's an island mindset. We have a lot to learn. And in the last year, when people haven't really been traveling as much and getting to meet other people, I know from volunteering in the DCU Students' Union that a lot of people have missed out on making international friends, you know, like Erasmus projects and people coming over here and getting to meet those people and even talking in different languages. Like I remember last year going to international events and you meet people from France, Spain and Italy and you'd get to test out, see if you've learned anything in school or if you remember anything. I think we're really missing out on that. And it it, it is refreshing to have this um, European politics conversation, but I suppose we should maybe get back to wrap down. (laughs) But I suppose to kind of segue into Rathdown, 
we talk about values such as solidarity and you know like action in society so maybe and I know you share these values and I hope I would think that I do too but how can we get people in Rathdown come together more and talk about issues how do I get how do I what do I have to do to get a, another bin out there or what do I have to do to get a bench put in or some flowers maybe in your position and and you know your history and working in the in the constituency office you could maybe describe how a person like me could reach out who to reach out to and how would you go about those little things yeah, well I mean those processes can, can sometimes be a little less straightforward than you'd like it. And I suppose like my advice to anyone is not necessarily to always directly take the issue to your TD. And I'm thinking about people who might they might be activists, they mightn't call themselves activists, but they're probably activists. They might want to campaign on a particular issue locally and build, uh, I suppose, a, a groundswell of support in a, in a community towards a particular issue. And I think it's about reaching out and engaging with others in, in that community, be it apartment block you're living in or, or local housing estate or, or whatever that you're kind of reaching out and seeing what works for other people convincing them of the need and, and the benefit for that and take you from there and then i think then i think you've built a very powerful case for something when you've i suppose got a bit more people power and i thought i think most cancers most cancers will tell you probably send me an email i'll raise it at uh, the dundrum or the dunleary local area committee and that's that is a method through which I think those requests are formalised and, and considered by the committee. But I, I do really think there's there's power in that kind of activism and campaigning at a local level, whatever the issue, and involving your councillors, your local area reps with within that. And, and they, I suppose, maybe have more of the access to the formal council structures through which to make requests. Um, and that can involve, you know, trying to facilitate meetings with, depending on the project or, or the, the, the issue, trying to facilitate meetings with engineers to do to, to understand like whether it's feasible um, and getting into the more kind of practical elements and also ensuring that you know in particular like budget processes with the council that you're advocating with your local councillors to ensure that these are going to be priority items but also voting for people who will actually who will actually improve public services because part of the problem we have is that a lot of funding for councils comes either through central government or through the local property tax. And what we have seen from uh, people both on the right and on the left is almost this, this annual kind of giveaway that there's going to be a 15% reduction in local property tax. And I think that's really regressive that people think in that way, that, you know, it's an extra 10 quid or whatever it is, an extra 60 quid in my pocket next year. Um, and that's not a good way, that, that's taking money away from public services. That's taking money away from, from road maintenance, from litter maintenance, from um, your local public am amenities. And, and I, I, I don't think that's a progressive thing to do. Uh, and I think we have some on the left particularly who call themselves socialists, but who want to lower taxes on people with the highest assets. The local property tax is a progressive tax. It's a tax on wealth. So the higher your the cost of, the higher the rate at which your asset, e.g. Um, your home is valued, um, then the higher the tax you face. Um, so I certainly believe that there, there are reforms needed to that, 
that tax in, in certain respects, particularly around things like the um, um, like tax on the size um, of property and properties in, in other jurisdictions, in other um, local authority areas. Um, but it is one that ensures a sustainable level of funding for um, local communities um, and one that I think is probably a solidaristic tax. I, I don't think, um, I, I'm not, I, I certainly, I think, um, I think in a way, like you will get people to say, well, look, people in apartments don't pay their tax. They do at the end of the day, it's passed on rent. Um, most people living in a local authority area will pay for it in one way or another. Um, and it's about ensuring a sustainable level of funding for upkeep for your local communities. And like, I mean, some of the stuff we saw last last year on Dunley Down County Council, I mean, it was it was an exceptional year in which Dunley Down Council had big struggles in the middle of a pandemic and actually really upped their game in, in in certain respects around things like active travel and ensuring that there was space outside um, for, you know, with widening footpaths to ensure that people can socially distance, particularly those who are vulnerable that might be older, that might be immunocompromised, and um, improving active travel so that people can, can cycle between local communities. And that's something that like, is hugely beneficial, not only from social and health perspective, but also from an economic perspective, because if you have those structures in place, there is a flow of people will be more inclined to spend money in their local communities if they can cycle the five minutes down the road or 10 minutes or whatever it is, or if they have the proper footpaths in place that aren't cracked and poorly maintained. And it's it's kind of disappointing to see people both on the left and right pose or, or at least call for significant drops in, in, in the local property tax every single year like it's some sort of Christmas giveaway because it's not. It affects local people's services. It affects housing. It affects traveler accommodation. It affects the world around us. And I think there's a job for people who are opposed to these kind of cuts or these kind of reductions in local, the, the, like 15% reductions in, in local property tax in actually communicating what your local, local property tax is spent on. And I think like myself included, we probably haven't done done a, not, a good enough job of um, explaining that. Yeah, I do think that when it comes to taxes, you know, people, when people hear, oh, you're going to be charged a bit more on this, they're like, oh my goodness, I, I'm getting taxed, I have to pay more money, it's coming out of my salary or whatever. And, you know, there is that initial panic. Like when I started working and, and tax was taking out of my salary, I was like, oh my goodness, I'm not used to this. And then I reminded myself that money's probably going to benefit the public somehow. And then I take a deep, deep breath and I'm like, that's grand, you know? And I think that in other countries, they do do it better. I think like, for example, in France, there is a higher tax in general. I think it's income tax. I could be wrong, but it does add up there you know you, you pay a higher tax but you get so many services back you know and as you said like in the healthcare kind of area and also just in general like schools and food and and everything and it adds up but I feel like in Ireland at the moment when you know people hear about tax like I know it's not happening anymore but with the white water raft project I don't think people will be very happy with their tax going towards that 
but if I heard that it was going towards, I don't know, like painting painting a wall outside my house or, you know, benches or plants in the area or community services, that just makes all the difference in the area. People are happier, people want to go out, mental health improves and it all adds up. So yeah, I definitely think there should be more information uh, about where the tax is going and maybe more information about where it could go. So people are positive about the situation and know that their community is going to improve because of it. People do want to see efficiency in terms of how their taxes are spent, regardless of what what sector that is, be it be it locally or be it through the national budget. But uh, I think if if we if we want good public services, we, we we do have to pay for it. Ireland does have on a national level a relatively progressive taxation system. We do have relatively high expenditure on health budget. But, and I, I speak about health a bit because it's kind of, it's, it's where I work in my day job and it's where I'm quite quite focused on. But we, we've had not necessarily inefficiencies in the way that taxes are spent, but inefficiencies in the, the systems they support. So, you know, we for example, we have a, a two-tier health system where we have a public system that, that, that works okay. It's not as, as always as, as catastrophic as, as people make out. It has been underinvested in, but the big problem with the health system is that people are waiting a very long time for access to diagnostic tests, to access to treatment. And that is compounded by a private system where people can pay to skip a queue. So your ability to access healthcare is in very many cases determined by um, your wealth or your ability to pay for it. And we have many, like about half the population of private health insurance and, and many people who do have it, in many cases can't afford it, but think they need it. Um, so that calls for reform of a health system that, that effectively isn't working. Um, that probably does require more investment, but more efficient investment as well. So if we look at things like um, electronic healthcare, there's been huge advances in the past year in some areas. Um, due to the pandemic, due to the nature of people han- handling fewer files. But if you look at the rollout of vaccinations at the moment, for example, so cohort four is people with who are at very high risk. So it might be people with things like cystic fibrosis, who might have they might have certain types of cancer or be un- have certain certain treatments, they might have cardiovascular issues. The government or the, the state has very few registries for those diseases. So that means that maybe with the exception of cancer, a lot of disease groups, we don't have an efficient list where in any given hospital you can go and check out the amount of people who have a particular illness or, or disease. We don't have a unique health identifier, which means you get a number at birth that basically follows you around throughout the healthcare system and ensures that we're keeping track of good data. And the point I'm getting to is we had a situation at the start of March where the government decided to bump some people who are at very high risk of death or severe illness if they got COVID up the, the vaccination list, which I think many people were quite happy about. They had to identify all those people in a couple of, in a few weeks, they're still doing it. And it, it, it's kind of inefficiencies like that through lack of investment, lack of lack of oversight, a lack of a joined up strategy and has been undermined by, like, has been undermined by a two-tier system where we, we are giving public money to private hospitals to outsource things that we can't do because there are high waiting lists. But part of the problem is we have an overworked, an overworked health force 
we've had chronic underinvestment in certain services and it just it kind of boggles the mind when you're throwing money at the end of the year as a stopgap solution to 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 a temporary to a temporary problem and giving that to the private sector like i, I think the labor party's been quite strong on this through through alan kelly and through the likes of Cody anthony connor about the actual purchase of private hospitals because we need additional capacity, we need additional workforce. And that's certainly something like this launch care program, which which is quite aggressive, but hasn't hasn't really kicked off in the way people would have hoped that the Labour Party signed up to. So there, there are huge challenges. And that's just that's just one area, but it's probably my my area of some expertise. It's great to hear your perspective on the health sector, definitely because you work in it. There's a lot of people who have opinions who won't be afraid to tell you, but it is important to to make sure you have your view as you work in it directly. And it definitely has been a frustrating year, especially the, the nurses trying to get paid and they're not getting paid enough. And then there's student nurses who still aren't really getting paid at all. I'm pretty sure our senator Annie Howie has been really pushing for student nurses to get paid and student nurses rights so that that is really great to see that you know our our senators and representatives are really pushing pushing for that it's kind of scary how not too much has happened with that in the last year even though it it was a problem even even before the pandemic so that has been awful your idea or not your idea but the whole thing about getting a code when you're born or even when you're older and you're diagnosed with different things for a lot of people i think with different illnesses it's been very hard getting to know if you're even in cohort four for example one of my friends he he does have an illness that's chronic illness and he was only told a few days ago that yeah okay cohort four there you go but you know it's it's about feeling validated and I think there is a lot of people who, who don't even feel validated. I would be more vulnerable to than other people but because a lot of health conditions aren't really looked upon as important or make you more vulnerable. There's a lot of people who probably feel lost in the health system especially in the public sector. Yeah it can be difficult especially for people with, with rare diseases where there's, there's just not that much evidence either here or, or in, in other countries as to the impact the COVID might have on them and, and that's We've seen, you know, from some organisations, a lot of self-advocacy from from people who are vulnerable and who have a lot of questions that are really going unanswered in some cases. Yeah, it's it it definitely has shown in the last year, like how important it is for vulnerable people to get the the treatments that they need. And there are a lot of people in Ireland who are on very long lists and need treatments immediately, but can't even access them at the moment, especially in minority kind of groups. And I'm sure these minority groups are based in Rathdale as well you know we have a lot of people in our area who who can't afford healthcare or or on these very long lists or maybe can't afford the medication they've been told to go on or things like that so just shows you that the fact that a healthcare system has such a big impact on people you know that that affects people's work life their education and then when you turn up to work late or or you don't do your homework then it's like oh well i don't have anything to to prove because i haven't been validated by our healthcare system so that no it is really interesting and important to to highlight and i'm just wondering we've talked about the constituency and making differences we've talked about european kind of politics and we've talked about the good things that are happening things that need to be improved and with the county development plan kind of coming up for submissions i think it's the 16th of april i'm wondering where do you see rathdown from 2021 to 2028 so where would you like to see our rathdown constituency in 2028 what would be be your ideal wrath down what what would be in it yeah this is that's a very good question like in terms of 
the consistency itself, you know, I, I think like there there are definitely improvements that can be made in terms of in terms of transport infrastructure. I think there's there's a lot of development happening or that has been proposed in recent years and that presents well, that presents challenges locally. So we are I'm looking at doing a, a public meeting at the end of April with our councillor colleagues um Peter Bryan and Lenny McCarthy, Rebecca Moynihan who's the Labour spokesperson on housing and uh, Lorcan Sir who's a lecturer in urban planning in, in the Technological University of Dublin. And I suppose what we've seen and this is this is an issue nationally but this is a local example of it is bad developer led planning in the form of strategic housing developments. So back in 2017 this policy was introduced whereby it was essentially to fast track development over 100 units. So if you apply for a strategic housing development uh, and there's more, more than 100 units in that that effectively bypasses the council and goes straight to onboard Canal and make a decision. Now that can be subject to a judicial review, and that has happened in a lot of cases. And I suppose it's worrying in a number of respects. So, firstly, it bypasses local democracy. Now, someone listening might say, oh, I don't really care if like my local councillors are bypassing this decision making process. But uh, and the problem isn't your isn't your local councillors being bypassed. The problem is you being bypassed. So if your local councillors who you may have voted for but who represent you aren't in a position to ensure that that your views are represented or heard or that there's any particular problems with the development, there's a lack of infrastructure to go along with it, they're not going to be in a position to make that case. Um, so they haven't been for the past few years and they won't until 2022 to which the to which the policy has been extended. So that's a big challenge. And that kind of that policy was due to expedite development. But what we've actually seen on a lot of those sites is developing holding on to holding on to the land while it appreciates in value so then they they weren't at least until there were amendments made quite relatively recently they were letting that they were letting land sit idle after getting planning and um, so it wasn't it didn't even achieve the aim of delivering more more homes really so it's kind of a a perverse policy that disenfranchises local people and doesn't house them either. I suppose there's been a bit of controversy around a couple of sites locally, uh, but the goat and Our Lady's Grove, and that kind of they kind of uh, certainly the edge between myself and, and the, the Slorgan and, and Dundrum wards. And I think what we want to challenge is the fact we've seen certain kind of Gael TDs and councillors. I suppose maybe not object strongly, but would show residents how to to make their feelings heard on this development. And that's perfectly fine. And they're well within their rights to advise locals as to how to object uh, or make observations known on, on particular developments. But the problem is that they're absolutely complicit in in ensuring this perverse policy continues while while the, the Fine Gael party is still in government. So it's, it's really frustrating. And I think one area I really want to see changes is a move away from developer-led housing and a move towards the provision of more public and affordable housing. Because we know, like regardless of the pandemic, the housing crisis is still going on. House prices have gone up by more than 7% in the last year in the middle of the pandemic because supply has been throttled by the lack of construction. But rents have also risen. So, you know, that the benefit we thought we'd get from people not being able to use Airbnbs and those lets coming back into the mar- market clearly hasn't been seen. So we need fresh thinking around around development housing. And that's, I suppose, part of what we wanted to talk about. But 
partly in answer to your question about what I'd like to see for 2028 is more affordable housing and more social housing for people in the community so that many people can continue to live in the community they grew up in and many others who may want to live here and who need desperately to be housed can do so in the area. Um, and I know Peter O'Brien through the council has put down a motion recently on the land at the Central Mental Hospital. He would like to ensure that that is kept for social affordable housing because uh, I, I just think absolutely public lands need, needs to remain in, in, in public ownership and we need to support people who are being priced out of priced out of areas where their families have been for, for generations. So I think that's probably something I'm passionate about and something that, that I, I think we would like to see some change in, something that I suppose I I've worked closely on in the past is around improving active travel in the local community. I proposed a couple of years ago a new cycle route um, from Slogan to Blackrock that would start would actually would start around Leopardstown, so it would it would take you through uh, Clonmore Park at the back around St. Profilus School, all the way through the village, through a couple of residential areas, through uh, Rockfield Park, and would bring you up to um, to Blackrock Village. And I think that would be something that's hugely beneficial for both communities. There are two, Blackrock is obviously outside the constituency, but there are two neighbouring towns that are, they're really a stone's throw away from each other. There's no infrastructure to link them. There's no, there's no bus service between Slorgan and Blackrock. The cycle routes are, are pretty patchy at best. And with a little bit of investment and signposting as well, we could actually have a route that links both towns that is mutually beneficial in terms of improving footfall in um, local communities, ensuring that we keep, keep local money in the local community. Uh, and I think that that's something that, that I've been quite passionate about and worked on when I was running for the council and will we'll continue to push uh, for. So those are just a couple of examples of things that, that I, I'd, I'd like to see changing. Thank you so much for sharing those. It, it just shows you how important it is to make sure you don't rush into things and that you make sure that you do have a plan for, for housing and that it is kept in the public sector because now I'm not, I'm not, I can't confirm this, but I'm pretty sure the, the public sector kind of owns a lot of, a lot of land and housing that just need to be redone. You know, there's a lot of empty houses in, you know, on the outskirts of Dublin that aren't even being used and that need to be used for people who don't have homes at the moment or for young adults who, who are stuck at home because they can't afford to to leave so that is an issue so definitely sustainable development in in the area and i look forward to seeing that cycle path uh there's one in blackrock that kind of linking ucd um which is incredible at the moment seeing people on their bikes going by on, in on the weekends it's just great for people to feel safe on the roads and really come out it takes me about an hour to get there on public transport if i'm walking to a bus so i think the quickest way is to walk or to run it even you know when it's going in through all the industrial areas or something like that 5k turns into a long 5k so um i really appreciate all those the little changes you've kind of wished for the next few years to be seen the the county development plan obviously like i mean there's, there's a few things that that do need to be looked at the area i mean there's like we we kind of we don't have great monitoring processes of of local area plans so there's one for slorgan like i'd be pushing for that to be reviewed in 2022 to see what areas need improvement to the end of that plan which is 2024 and looking at developing a local area plan for cabin i realize it's outside the rat down and constituency but it's in the the slorgan ward and that would have input from from all the councillors in 
Slorgenland electoral area and, and Killiney Shank Hill areas, which Cabotini is situated in. Um, and something that I'm passionate about, and you see all over Dublin, is the need for a proper litter prevention plan. The Labour Party has done a lot recently on, on the issue of fly tipping, but I'm just talking more generally. I, I think there's a bit of an orthodoxy in the council that we don't need any more bins, we don't need any more recycling facilities. And if you go out in your local community or you do a local cleanup, I mean, the amount of like the amount of waste, the amount of bags of dog poo that like won't biodegrade, that they won't degrade for thirty years and are just left discarded, you know, in the middle of a park, it's it's very frustrating when people are trying to to, I suppose, construct a livable um, a livable community, and they're trying to limit their impact on the natural world and the environment around you. And um, you know, we saw just the last few days up at the Dodder, a huge amount of waste left left by that one evening. And I think we need like preventative measures as well as strictly enforcing rules around rules and laws around littering. Because what we see, like I, I just as an example, if you walk from the Lewis at um, uh, Stillorgan all the way down to the village I think you'll probably encounter one bin at most and if you're making litter and not just the usual black bins but actually putting in place recycling bins rather than just the one the one bin where everything will go to the landfill people will use I, I, I do think people will use them but if you look across all the local authority areas in Dublin there, there's just a dearth of waste and recycling facilities around in, in, like in local communities and that and that's that is partly responsible for the spread and that that means better investment in in litter wardens it means better investment in actually providing facilities for people to use and it also means ensuring that if if people are littering that that the wardens are, are dealing with that and ensuring that um that people are are, are duly punished for for doing that i completely agree with you i think if there's anything I'd be very strict on in the area, it would be littering because no matter who you are, you're taught at some stage of your life that littering is bad. And I think that a lot of my friends, you know, like over the age of 18, they'd be adults now and you still go out and you'd be walking, either you're walking up the mountain or going to the park and they'll bring cans or something like that. And I remember one of my friends brought a huge bag of cans and uh, he decided to leave them up the mountain and and he just we just walked away because we were going home and I was like that, that's your bag like what are you doing there and uh, I just ended up carrying it all the way home because I just could not stand like leaving a bag of things that can really damage the environment you know like you you are absolutely guaranteed that that is going to really hurt an animal or it's going to hurt the soil that you've left it on or the plants that's going around it so i think that stricter policies and and you know measures against littering i'd be extremely for because i don't think people understand the consequences and i don't think people think that they will have to face any so i would definitely be for that if there's ever a vote on that um and the cleanups are great as well you know so getting people involved in the cleanups i think more people need to do that because then they appreciate the amount of littering that's going on in the area yeah well that's that's actually quite a good idea and i mean like it's it's a real like it's, it's i love doing i love doing community cleanups it's a real sense of civic duty where 
you have a lot of people working together towards the same goal of, of keeping um of keeping your local area tidy and, and enjoyable for um for various generations like i, I think like I, I do think the point needs to be made that you have to make the right choice the easy choice as well and that is about providing the facilities for people to use look some people will be inconsiderate and leave things behind um and there need to be rules in place to ensure that that doesn't happen but you also need to ensure that there are facilities there um, that people can use so that so that if if someone is faced with the lazy way like it's 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 just like you don't you don't have a choice you know and I, one thing i would say is that i do feel i do kind of um i do kind of feel sorry for young people in a way because often they they bear the brunt of kind of discourse about people littering parks and whatever else and it's just it's 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 not uh, it's not just them we see flight taking from people across all age groups um, and and like yeah i know it's uh, you see a lot of it up in i suppose your and uh, the areas that you guys are in in, in lincoln sandyford um particularly in, in the more rural areas which is really um destructive for um local environment we won't be waiting till 2028 on this one but hopefully in the in the next few weeks or months even that you know stricter stricter measures will be put in place so that people can enjoy the the beautiful landscapes we have available to us during the summer so thank you so much paul for joining me on this this sunny thursday you've decided to give up an hour so thank you i really appreciate that and i'm sure the the listeners will be positively impacted by all the work you've done and and looking forward to the work you're doing and the the small changes in our in our Rathdown area. Um, Thanks very much for having me. Have a lovely me, uh... weekend. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're living in the Rathdown area and you would like to get involved, please feel free to reach out to me and you could be on one of our episodes. So that's it for today. Take care and I'll see you in the next podcast.